0: in alabama and mississippi a devastating tornado leaves at least two dozen people dead and destruction in its wake trees down all our businesses all of this over we gone for saturday march 25th it's all things considered I'm Scott Detrow. TikTok's CEO was grilled for hours on Capitol Hill. One lawmaker says data privacy is a
1: concern, but... The problem is we see the bullseye in front of us, and then they're shooting 90 degrees to the left or right, trying to figure out how to address it by trying to ban a platform.
0: And we head to Ukraine to meet the street artist who's turning rubble into art. If you didn't think about death or destroyed, it looks so beautiful, like a flower. First, the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Tornadoes tore through the south overnight, leaving at least 25 people dead in Mississippi, at least one in Alabama. In the Mississippi Delta, entire communities have been leveled. Mississippi Public Broadcasting's
3: Kobe Vance has more on the significant damage done to the western part of the state. The town of Rolling Fork, Mississippi is a scene of disaster, with most of the town having sustained severe tornado damage. Mississippi's Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman is meeting with local leaders, emergency managers, and residents to ask what they may need to begin recovery efforts. Picking up
4: the debris would take months just, just to move that. So I was with, meeting with him about how we go forward and how many of my operations have been meeting with him shortly. So there'll be some help here, but we, you know, these people have suffered a catastrophic
3: loss. Mississippi's governor has declared a state of emergency to aid in getting rescue operations underway. For NPR News, I'm Kobe Vance in Jackson.
2: Fifteen people were found suffocating in a train car in South Texas yesterday. Two were pronounced dead on the scene. Ten were hospitalized. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports officials stopped that train after being alerted to the migrants inside.
0: Uvalde police said they were alerted by a 911 call and then notified Border Patrol agents who searched the train about three miles east of nearby Canipa. Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin said the train was sitting in the afternoon sun for more than three hours. Union Pacific Railroad, which operates the line where the migrants were found, is leading the investigation into what happened on the train. A Homeland Security Investigation Unit from Immigration and Customs Enforcement said it was looking into the possibility of human smuggling but wouldn't provide any more details. The segment of Highway 90 between the border town of Del Rio and San Antonio has become a major route for human smuggling, Last June in San Antonio, 53 migrants were found dead in a tractor trailer. I'm Joy Palacios in Canipa.
2: Vice President Harris kicks off a three-nation tour of Africa this weekend. This as the U.S. pitches itself as a better partner than China, a longtime investor in the African continent. Michael Koloki has
5: more. The vice president is due to arrive in the West African nation of Ghana on Sunday. During her four-day visit to the country, Harris is expected to meet with Ghanaian president Nana Akufo-Addo. She is also scheduled to meet with young Ghanaians working in the creative arts, as well as women entrepreneurs. The vice president is expected to announce a series of public and private sector investments aimed at empowering women and reducing the digital gender divide in Africa. Following her visit to Ghana, The vice president is scheduled to proceed to Tanzania and later to Zambia. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi.
2: And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. A church service for Ukraine was held in Jamaica Plain this afternoon. A year after the Russian invasion, the Archdiocese of Boston and Ukrainian Catholic Church say their worship together express solidarity with Ukrainians. Metropolitan Boris Gudyak is the Archbishop of Ukrainian Catholics in the United States. He says he's grateful for churchgoers in JP.
1: This parish has been very
2: active in supporting the people in Ukraine with humanitarian aid, with advocacy, and with prayer.
6: Today's service was held at the Christ the King Ukrainian parish. Massachusetts housing agencies are asking state lawmakers to extend a pandemic-era policy that prevents evictions. Jill Kaufman reports the protection expires this Friday. The policy requires eviction cases to be paused when a tenant has an application for rental aid in process. That includes money from the Residential Assistance for Families in Transition Program, or RAFT. Keith Ferry is the executive director of the housing agency Wayfinders in Springfield. He says every day their lobby is filled with people asking for help. The applications are complicated, he says, but there is money available and the moratorium policy buys people time to prevent an eviction.
7: It's concerning that if there is not coordination between the courts and understanding where these applications are in a way that is working toward a goal of housing security and stability, uh, that we could be facing some dire situations.
6: Housing agencies are asking for an extension of the state eviction moratorium through July 2024. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Investigations are underway into last night's major fire in Situate. Five beachfront homes were destroyed. It's 5.05. In sports, the Bruins beat the Lightning today 2-1 at the Garden, and that win clinches the Atlantic Division title. With their 56th win of the season, the Bruins are within one victory of the club record set by the Big Bad Bruins in 1970-1971. The Bees play again tomorrow against Carolina. The forecast is calling for some light rain tonight, temperatures around 38. This is WBUR.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org.
0: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. We begin tonight's program in western Mississippi, where a rare long-track tornado left a trail of devastation Friday night. At least two dozen people are dead there and in Alabama, which also saw extreme weather. Thousands of homes are without power, and many people are facing a future where everything they own has been destroyed.
4: In the mobile park that I'm at, there's nothing left. There are vehicles on top of the area diner, pool table out there, and a couple of arcade machines, but that's all
8: It's standing there. Every individual mobile home is gone.
0: Emily Wagster-Pettis is a reporter for the Associated Press, where she covers Mississippi politics, and she's with us now from Rolling Fork, Mississippi, where the damage was most severe. Emily, welcome to All Things Considered.
3: Hi, Scott. Thank you.
0: I mean, the images coming out of Rolling Fork and other towns show cars and trucks driven into the ground at right angles, shredded homes, shredded warehouses, debris everywhere. Start by telling us what you're seeing today.
3: Yes, the destruction, I mean, some of it is just crazy. Like you said, there are um, vehicles that were just turned upside down. I saw a truck upside down in a ditch. Um, I saw large hunks of metal wrapped around trees houses with the roofs just pulled apart um the first baptist church the steeple had been knocked down to the ground uh there are a lot of people in rolling fork to help though a lot of people showed up Mm -hmm. with chainsaws today
0: and what sort of conversations have you been having today
3: oh my goodness um i spoke to a woman who was in her living room um she said there was no storm siren at all um she was watching television and knew that there was a possibility of bad weather. I, like anybody, I think, in that situation, she was sort of surprised by how quickly it, it turned terrible. Yeah. Um, her sunroom was just blown apart. Um, fortunately, her she was okay. Her family is okay. But just across the street from her, there's a woman who lived in a mobile home. That mobile home was obliterated, and her neighbor was killed.
0: I mean, at this point in time, it's probably too early to know the full extent of the damage. But as we have this conversation, what do we know big picture about what happened?
3: One thing that's important to remember about this part of Mississippi is that it's very poor. Um, The the counties where this huge tornado went through, Sharkey and Issaquina, are two of the um, least sort sort of most sparsely populated counties in the state. Um, It's a largely agricultural area. They grow a lot of cotton, corn, and soybeans around here. There are a lot of people who work at kind of low-wage jobs. Um, And so there are a lot of questions about just the ability of people to get back on their feet and recover financially. I mean, some people lost everything.
0: I mean, the and the extent of the storm, it seems so powerful, so long-lasting uh, in, in a rare way. Do meteorologists have a sense of why this tornado was so so powerful?
3: You know, that that is a great question, and um, I wish I had paid more attention to that, but I've really not been out in the field interviewing people makes sense, today and makes not sense. talking to meteorologists.
0: All right, well, Emily waxer is a reporter with the Associated Press. Thank you for sharing some of your reporting with us today from Rolling Fork, Mississippi. Thank you. In West Reading, Pennsylvania, late Friday afternoon, a massive explosion blew apart a chocolate factory known for making chocolate Easter bunnies. The blast killed at least two people and five more are missing. Gabriella Martinez, a member station WITF, has more from the scene of the explosion.
9: Emergency crews have been on the scene since shortly after the explosion. Rescue teams are using dogs and imaging equipment to locate victims. There are piles of rubble on the street. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro visited the site along with Pennsylvania's Emergency Management Agency Director and vowed to deploy any and all Commonwealth resources for the recovery efforts. Police Chief Wayne Holman briefed reporters.
10: The discovery of life overnight, of the overnight recovery efforts, provides hope that others still may be found.
9: West Ready Mater Samantha Cagg issued a declaration of emergency in the early morning hours. Search and rescue
11: efforts continue to push forward, the community has continued to support the, our, the victims.
9: Luis Martinez lives down the street from the factory and heard the explosion.
12: The whole foundation was shaking. You know, everyone's here. Um, like, literally, I, the way it felt from inside, I was literally in my living room, uh, it felt like the whole house was coming down. You know, that's how literally it felt. Um, and it took me a couple of seconds to gather my awareness of exactly what the heck was happening.
9: He ran out to help victims on the street who are now recovering in the hospital.
12: I'm just concerned uh, for the people that are still in there.
9: The search goes on for those people who are still missing. And the cost of the explosion is still being investigated. For NPR News, I'm Gabriela Martinez in West Reading, Pennsylvania.
0: President Biden is back from his latest foreign trip. This one was to Ottawa. It's a trip that presidents usually make early on in their time in the White House, but it took Biden a while to get there, and he had a lot to talk about with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez was on that trip, and he joins me now. Franco, I mean, I appreciate you being here in studio. You're probably suffering jet lag from your exotic travels.
5: <laughs> it's been a long, it's been a long last few days, but it's great to be here, Scott. I
0: mean, I, I'm joking, but but the point is, Ottawa is very close to the United States. And it is usually one of the first trips a president takes. And and as we mentioned, it, it took some time to get there. But once Biden did get there, it really did feel like a love fest between him and Justin Trudeau, even though They might not have a lot of common on the face of things.
5: Yeah, it was a love fest. And there is kind of a lot of differences between the two, especially just the age gap. I mean, you probably know this, but Biden actually knew Trudeau's father, uh, the former prime minister, Pierre Trudeau. And, you know, even though there is this age gap, Biden and Trudeau, the younger Trudeau, of course, you know, there have spent a lot of time uh, on the same side of some major issues, particularly Ukraine. Yeah. Um, You know, actually, Canada has a huge Ukraine. Ukrainian diaspora. Trudeau is one of the biggest backers of Ukraine's fight against Russia, and they talked a lot about this over the last couple of days. Yesterday, particularly, Biden talked about expanding alliances uh, and also praised Canada's dedication to Ukrainian refugees. And Trudeau, he called this a moment of consequence, and also said there was a need to double down on democracies. Canada, specifically Montreal, is also home to a large.
0: Haitian community and the crisis of gang violence in Haiti right now was another thing on Biden and Trudeau's agenda. But it seems like maybe that was an area where they were a little less in sync. What was going on?
5: Yeah, they've, they've got some differences there that they're still trying to work out. I mean, the situation in Haiti, as you know, is really rough. Gangs have taken over the capital. basically. Both Canada and the U.S. have been doing their best to try to help. White House actually has been pressuring Canada to lead a, a military force, pardon me, to try to bolster the police and stabilize the city. You know, Canada was first supporting the idea, but then kind of backed away. Mm -hmm. You know, Trudeau said just last week and has continued to say that outside intervention doesn't work. Uh, Yesterday, he promised Canada would, though, contribute $100 million to support the police forces in Haiti. And Biden, actually, despite the White House's you know, insistence for the last few weeks that military intervention is needed, he seemed to kind of back down a bit on the request for intervention. Here's a, a little bit of what he said.
7: Any decision about military force, which is often raised, we think would have to be done in consultation with the United Nations and, uh, and with the Haitian government. And so that is not off the table, but that is not in play at the moment.
0: That's an interesting shift. So this is an issue where they're still trying to work out a path forward. But the violence in Haiti has certainly led to to immigration issues, both in the US and Canada. And that was an area where where the two men did have some agreement. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, that was pretty big news. I mean, both countries are struggling with a large number of migrants and migration. You know, it's actually a source of rising political pressure for Trudeau. Um, he so much so that he raised the issue of this treaty with the United States that many blame for the increase of illegal crossings. There's actually a, a popular, uh, unofficial spot. It's called Roxanne Road, which is between New York and Quebec that gets so much attention. Mm -hmm. Well, Biden agreed to some of those changes uh, that will allow both uh, countries to turn away more migrants. And this new deal essentially allows Canada to send asylum seekers who cross the border back to the United States, and the United States will be able to do the same, sending them back to Canada. And let me just note one more thing, Scott, Um, Canada will also accept an additional 15,000 migrants per year who arrive at the U.S. southern border, and that's folks from Haiti, Colombia, Ecuador, and others.
0: And that gets to a broader trend with Biden that you've been covering. He has taken a number of steps lately to try to curb migration. What's going on here? What is he trying to do?
5: Yeah, I mean, he's been cracking down. I mean, Biden is making it harder for migrants to seek asylum in the United States. You know, some of this it has to do with politics of course you know we've talked a lot about how biden appears to be setting up preparing for a 2024 uh campaign run for a second term Uh, And migration, you know, is a vulnerable issue for Biden politically. And it's a favorite issue for Republicans. Uh, It really energizes those voters. Biden has talked about a comprehensive reform package that would include like a path to citizenship, but that's not going to go anywhere in this Congress or anytime soon. And more recently, Biden is making it harder for people to seek asylum in the United States. And those tougher policies are a way politically for Biden to kind of tack back to the center. So
0: Biden's positioning himself for a run for a second term. He still hasn't officially announced it. But one of the big ways he has been positioning himself lately has been this big economic message of of trying to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. that has sometimes frustrated allies like Canada, because if you're building more things in the U.S., you're, you know, not building those things elsewhere. And yet Biden talked a lot about this on his trip to
5: Canada. Yeah. Even even boasted that these big spending packages will help Canada. You know, I'm talking about, we're talking about packages that include made in America provisions. But Biden made a case, and the case that he made is that the United States needs critical minerals for batteries and semiconductors. Mm -hmm. And there's some funding to give Canadians, companies, money to process those. So there's some incentives for Canada, but we'll see what happens. NPR's Franco Ordonez, thanks for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, with Clydes. Nominated for five 2022 Tonys, including Best Play, the joyous comedy and Broadway hit Clydes comes to the newly renovated and beautifully restored Huntington Theatre, March 24th through April 23rd. Written by two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Lynn Nottage. Huntingtontheater.org. The time is 5.18, coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, celebrating spring and the start of wedding season.
1: WBUR supporters include Bernadine Sung-Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com.
2: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. More than two dozen people are dead after powerful tornadoes slammed into Mississippi and Alabama overnight. Rescuers are looking for survivors amid the rubble after some towns were destroyed and power is out to tens of thousands of customers in the region. In western France, more than 30 protesters were injured in violent clashes with police around a giant agriculture irrigation reservoir. And March Madness continues today in college basketball with a twist. With Miami's win over Houston and San Diego State's takedown of Alabama, the men's NCAA tournament will not have a number one seed in the Elite Eight for the first time since seeding began in 1979. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at BankofAmerica.com slash BankingForBusiness. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The week began and ended with former President Donald Trump warning of his imminent arrest. He wasn't arrested. He still has not been arrested. But that did not stop Trump from ramping up threats of political violence as the week went on. A Manhattan grand jury investigation is focusing on payments Trump made to adult film actress Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential election in order to cover up an alleged affair. And the saga shows one thing has not changed over the past eight years. When Trump posts on social media, the Republican Party is driven to respond. Those responses also provide a bit of a window into how other Republican presidential contenders view the state of the party. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell has been following all of this and joins me now. Hey, Kelsey. Hi there. Before we get any further, remind us why Trump would believe he might be arrested in the first place.
13: Right. You know, Trump really is facing lots of legal jeopardy in lots of jurisdictions in many states. But this is a situation where the grand jury in Manhattan was scheduled to meet this week. And this really comes down to media reports that suggested that the grand jury's work was nearly complete and that indictments were imminent. And Trump seemed to have been responding to those reports. Now, they did meet, but those indictments did not happen this week. That doesn't mean they couldn't still happen, but they did not happen this week. Now, this is not one of those big questions about 2020 or interference in the election. But this could still be pretty significant to Trump's political chances if, in fact, he is indicted because it could speak to his image with voters or it could change the way that he interacts with the campaign. So no indictment came, but Trump still started the day on Friday with posts on his you know, social network, True Social, mm-hmm. warning about what he called potential death and destruction if he's eventually indicted. So this is an ongoing question.
0: And Trump has threatened in subtle and not subtle ways political mm-hmm. violence all along. But I think you have to take threats of political violence more seriously in the world after January 6, 2021 than before.
13: Absolutely. And I think that's something that, you know, elected Republicans are very wary of and are trying to, again, struggle with how to respond.
0: Right. And there's also a group of Republicans thinking about running for president Mm -hmm. against Trump right now. Not that many have declared, but many are positioning themselves and expected to to get into the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Talk about how that group of people has responded to this.
13: Well, one of those you know, expected potential primary candidates is former Vice President Mike Pence. And now when he was asked about it, he did not defend Trump. He said the idea of charging a former Republican president in a political environment like New York, where the attorney general is an elected Democrat, was troubling. But when he was asked about Trump's personal legal jeopardy, he basically said that Trump can take care of himself. So that's not exactly a defense, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's... And 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 Mike Pence is somebody who's kind of tried to have it both ways many times yes. when it comes to his relationship with his former running mate.
13: Yeah. And, you know, I was also interested in another person who is presumed to be jumping into the race, and that's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, he took the same tactic as Pence, sort of. He called it a possible prosecution and that it was political, but he also took a pretty clear jab at Trump. This is what he said.
10: I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that.
13: As you can hear there, he really did get a few laughs, but it does get to something that Republicans see as Trump's weakness, and that's morality and the parts of Trump where he's kind of bombastic and not on message.
0: Right, and that's been a political conversation since he first ran for president mm-hmm. in 2015. He was, of course, elected in 2016. But especially in the years since he was elected president, you have seen a lot of moderate voters, uh, a lot of independent voters really turn off from Trump personally. How are people like Ron DeSantis trying to walk that line and trying to make that attack, even as they try to avoid directly confronting him?
13: I mean, they're trying to highlight these moments where Trump breaks with the image of the rest of the party. And you're also seeing Republicans trying to use their position in controlling the House of Representatives to move legislation that establishes a kind of Positive record for them to run on. And in that, in a good example of that is the vote that they had this week on the Parental uh, Bill of Rights. They're trying to establish this space of, you know, culture wars issues where they can take on an affirmative argument. We're also seeing it in the realm of transgender rights and other social issues where they think they can really capture their base.
0: So there's a serious legal situation happening this week, but I have mm-hmm. to say, There's been a lot of deja vu of another Trump dynamic. He posts something on social media. It gets into cable news. Republicans respond. I have very specific memories of being with you in the Capitol in 2017 and 2018, chasing down lawmakers, trying to get them to respond to tweets. At a certain point when Republicans would say, oh, I haven't seen it, reporters would say, well, I, in fact, printed out this tweet and here you go. You can see it right now.
13: I mean, it is a powerful tactic from Trump, and it really served him both as a candidate and as president to be able to take control of social media, to force responses. But that's not always positive for him. It was a real turn off, as you mentioned, for some voters, and it really did create new negative issues for him to respond to both as president and after his presidency.
0: So here we are in 2023. And in many ways, it feels very much like 2015, in which Donald Trump is a declared candidate for president. You have a lot of Republican office holders and a lot of Republican officials Saying in subtle ways, in on background ways, I would love it if this man is not the nominee of our party. But you have a big chunk of Republican voters who love Donald Trump and you don't have anybody who is topping him on the polls right now. So a question, again, March 2023, that I could have asked you in in August 2015, have Republicans come up with a way to successfully navigate Trump, his social media posts, the controversies that come with it?
13: They have not. Uh, I mean, he is the former president. He has access. He is able to reach audiences that they are just not able to. And he is a huge force that they cannot avoid responding to. And he is extremely skilled at hijacking the national stage and conversations that Republicans don't want to have. Like he said, he was doing this before he was a candidate for president in 2016. This is something that he has honed over time. And Republicans are still trying to figure out how they respond.
0: NPR's Kelsey Snell, thanks for joining us.
13: Thanks for having me.
0: On Thursday, the CEO of TikTok testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee and was grilled by representatives from both parties.
1: Your technology is literally leading
0: to death. You know, you say you're benign, you want to do good things for the public. So let me ask you, what about a commitment that says that uh, you won't sell the data that you collect?
3: Yes or no, do you screen against content from
0: nations that commit crimes against humanity. That was Republican Congressman Gus Bilirakis of Florida, Democrat Frank Pallone Jr. of New Jersey, and Republican Gary Palmer of Alabama. In recent months, opposition to TikTok has gained momentum in the United States with more and more lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, raising concerns that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, might be sharing data from U.S. users with the Chinese government. Many are calling for a ban on the massively popular app that boasts 150 million U.S. users. Despite the growing opposition to the app in Congress, a relatively small group of Democratic representatives have spoken out against a proposed ban on the app.
9: This is more governing through fear-mongering without actual evidence.
0: That's Congressman Jamal Bowman, Democrat from New York. Making the case alongside Bowman is a fellow progressive, Mark Pocan, Democratic congressman from Wisconsin, who joins me now.
1: Good afternoon. Glad to be here.
0: At this point, there's a pretty broad bipartisan consensus on this issue. I guess my question to you is, why are so many of your colleagues wrong? Well, this is
1: kind of the classic difference of of what a member of Congress is and what the country is. There's a real issue out there, and we should be addressing our privacy of our data Across all social media platforms. The problem is we see the bullseye in front of us and then they're shooting 90 degrees to the left or right, trying to figure out how to address it by trying to ban a platform. In reality, we have to take on all the platforms to make sure that we're protecting people and the privacy of their data. But, you know, what we're doing isn't even close to that.
0: So it seems like you're saying that the personal information being sucked up by, by TikTok is happening, but your point is that this happens on Facebook, this happens on Instagram, this happens on Twitter as well, and, and I see that, but there's the specific question here with TikTok of the Chinese government and its interactions with the company. What's, what's your response to that?
1: they haven't shown us anything yet to say that's being done, right? Uh, Normally, we would have classified briefing or some sort of briefing if that was the case. That hasn't happened. Um, But, you know, what is happening is Congress, the average age, I think, is 57 and a half. Uh, And if you asked, I would guess somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of members have never been on TikTok, but they certainly have lots of opinions. And this week, I think we had a relatively cringeworthy hearing where members, you know, ask questions about does TikTok access your internet And, and, you know, is the leader of China, your boss, and all sorts of other really crazy questions, which is what often happens, as you know, on a lot of different technology issues. You know, members of Congress, especially, you know, on some of these committees are not probably the most well-versed on these issues. Yes. The reality, though, is there is a real problem out there. And, you know, I think some of the antitrust subcommittee work on judiciary has been actually trying to get at going after some of these social media giants. The problem is in order to go after all of them you have to go after a lot of lobbyists in washington you got to go after some of the richest people in the country who by the way, happen to contribute to both Democrats and Republicans, and that makes it tougher. So in trying to act like we're addressing the problem, I think a lot of people are just missing the target and saying, let's go after TikTok because maybe, possibly, they could do this. And if they were actually right, then we should have questions about why we're making phones or computers in China, why we have cloud services out of China. You did mention lobbyists. I
0: do want to ask, have you had conversations with TikTok, which is certainly mounting a lobby in Camp pain as it comes under this pressure.
1: No. In fact, what's funny is my office has just heard me complaining about this because, you know, I I have to be one of the people who's one of the 150 million people that is a consumer of TikTok. But there certainly is an issue about how they deal with our data and privacy and in pushing certain content. And I'm not saying that we see that coming out of TikTok, but Mm -hmm. we see that coming out of social media in general. Those are real issues that we should be able to, in a bipartisan way, address. And some of this, unfortunately, I think falls into the category of xenophobia.
0: You did say a lot. Lot of the deep concerns at the heart of this are hypothetical at this point, there's not clear evidence. But TikTok did admit that employees in China accessed the personal data of some U.S. journalists who were reporting on company leaks. Was that specific issue, which again TikTok did admit, concerning to you?
1: Anytime uh, they're misusing any social media platform, is misusing or without our knowledge doing some work with data, it should concern everyone.
0: You're a top progressive. A lot of younger progressive voters use TikTok every single day. I mean, what do you think the real world response would be if this ever was somehow banned? I mean, you're talking about the fact that a lot of lawmakers are not, you know, deeply connected to this platform, but millions and millions of younger Americans are.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's then that's the disconnect. In fact, you know, even younger members, I got to admit, I had a conversation with a younger member who's like kind of giving some of the, the rhetoric that bluntly comes out of some of the paid um organizing efforts by some of the other companies uh that are out there trying to you know uh, paint TikTok in a certain way and i finally said to the person have you ever been on tiktok And they said, no. And I just find it fascinating how, you know, people have so many opinions about something that they've never even taken a look at. We should do something about social media platforms and privacy of data and the pushing of disinformation. That should be something. What would
0: you do, though? Because because personal information is at the heart of so many of these social media companies. So So what's
1: the fix? What we need to do is figure out exactly how the platforms are collecting data and how they use it and how they're using brokers, and how they're pushing some of the disinformation that we know exists, and then figure out some policy around that that protects consumers so that you can still have an online platform, which is the reality of where we are in 2023 America, or for that Mm -hmm. matter, the world, uh, but you can do it in a way that protects consumers. Isn't there a
0: broader problem here that the people who run this country don't seem to understand a core part of its economy?
1: We do need to have outsiders sometimes present some of that expertise to Congress so that we can actually get our, uh, a handle on it. I mean, we're not the fastest moving entity, right? I think sloths sometimes watch Congress and ask why we're moving so slowly. Uh, this is one of those issues that we just don't have the expertise. We need to, to get that in. We need to bring these companies in and we can't be persuaded by lobbyists or for that matter, rich individuals who own some of these other platforms or affiliated with them that we ignore their platform, but we'll look at a different one.
0: Sloths move faster than Congress. Sloths also make good social media content, usually, i found.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right.
0: <laughs> it's Congressman Mark Pokan. Congressman Pokan, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. The northeastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv has been heavily attacked over the last year. Thousands of residents have fled, but one street artist has remained. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley spoke with the man known as the Ukrainian Banksy.
14: I meet Hamlet Zinkivsky, or Gamlet as the name is pronounced in Ukrainian, on a windy March day in his native city of Kharkiv. The 36-year-old was born and raised here in Ukraine's second-largest city, known for its heavy industry. Zinkivsky says life felt stagnant in his drab post-Soviet country. He used to dream of immigrating to the West. Then came the Maidan uprising in Kyiv in 2013 against the corrupt pro-Kremlin President Viktor Yanukovych.
8: But start Maidan and they think, hmm, now I am really interesting. And when Yanukovych moved to Russia, I think yes. And after start the war, and now we have a future.
14: As horrible as it has been, he says this war has also inspired him.
8: For me now, it's a brilliant time, very hard time, but brilliant, amazing time because I feel every day
14: something, something amazing, something new. As a young student at Kharkiv Art School, Zinkivsky dreamed of becoming a painter of traditional religious icons. But 15 years ago, he discovered street art on the internet. He's never looked back. His black and white contemporary drawings with captions speckle the city. Zinkivsky painted 35 last year alone. He walks the streets in search of the perfect place. Whoa. Oh, we just crossed one of his works on the sidewalk. I almost stepped on it. Okay, so you used the cluster bomb yeah, yeah, because, indentations.
8: Because if you didn't think about death or destroyed, it looks so beautiful in asphalt, like a flower.
14: The occupier brings its own flowers, In Kivsky's caption reads. This artist says he was a pacifist until 2014 when Russian President Vladimir Putin started his war in the East and took Crimea. Other things have changed. Zinkivsky spoke Russian for 35 years, but now only speaks Ukrainian and English. When the war started, he joined a battalion and served for 10 months. Then his commander told him to get back to the streets.
8: They said, no way, for what? It's it's stupid because city is totally empty. No gauntlet, people need it. And he
14: was right, really right. Zinkiewski says he feels like he's part of the history of his city now. As we walk the streets, air raid sirens go off.
8: For me, it's like a sound of my city. You wake up because bomb and center, and you don't know you work all day or die in this day. <laughs> and it's a very interesting period for my life.
14: People often stop Zinkiewski on the street to tell him how much it means to them he's still here and making art on a black wrought iron gate is his white drawing of a children's seesaw. The war steals a lot of time and opportunities, it says on one side of the seesaw. On the other, the war gives a lot of time and opportunities. Parky resident Olena Olenich is studying the drawing with her husband and child. She agrees.
3: No
14: this war has stolen a lot from us, she says. But soon we will be victorious and free. Zinkivsky also dreams of a new Ukraine. Without corruptions, without stupid people, and to help to in other countries. Then Hamlet, the Ukrainian Banksy, moves on to create more art. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kharkiv.
0: This is NPR News.
6: It's 39 degrees under a thick blanket of clouds right now in Boston. I'm Josie Guarino, and thanks for spending time with WBUR on this Saturday. We can expect on and off showers throughout the night, tomorrow turning sunny, breezy, low 40s. Coming to City Space, Tuesday, April 4th, Olympian and long-distance runner Cara Goucher to discuss her new memoir on one of the biggest scandals in running history. Virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events. This is WBUR.
2: I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how.
6: Just go to WBUR.org.
2: WBR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum quality custom frames for individuals, artists and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Israel's defense minister is calling on his government to stop advancing legislation that would weaken checks on the presidency. He is the first senior leader to publicly oppose the judicial overhaul that sparked months of unprecedented protest. In Florida, authorities say two Cuban migrants used a motorized hang glider to fly the approximately 90 miles from the communist island to Key West. The Monroe County Sheriff's Office says the duo landed safely at West International Airport today and were turned over to the custody of the U.S. Border Patrol. And the UAW has a new leader. Sean Fain won over incumbent Ray Curry in a close election. He will be sworn in tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Alfred A. Knopf, publisher of Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story, the new memoir written and read by Bono, artist, activist, and lead singer of U2. Available everywhere books and audiobooks are sold. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Black pioneers in video game development have pushed the field forward. There's Jerry Lawson, who helped make video games playable at home, and Ed Smith, who reimagined consoles in those early days of at-home gaming. But even though there are hundreds of thousands of jobs in the video game industry, black people only hold 5% of those jobs. That's according to a 2021 survey from the International Game Developers Association. But their numbers have been growing, so NPR's Brianna Scott spoke with some black indie video game developers about how they got their start.
12: Growing up as a kid in Texas, Xavier Nelson Jr. knew he wanted to be part of the video game industry.
4: I was reading an article about Duke Nukem Forever, a kind of infamously panned video game, and it mentioned that game journalists got games for free. And I was like, oh, game journalists get games for free. That is the only job that makes sense (laughs) for a child in this world. So thanks to the power of the internet at 12 years old, I pretended to be an adult and I got my, uh, first job.
12: Bold move for a preteen, but it worked. He began reviewing games from companies like Activision and Bandai Namco Entertainment. Soon, Nelson was writing for well-known industry outlets like PC Gamer and Polygon. And before he was old enough to even vote, Nelson had gained a lot of insight into the video game industry, like how grueling it can be
4: i decided i didn't want to be a part of it anymore
12: but there was one thing he still wanted to try making his own video game even though he knew the industry had its issues
4: the problem is i loved it i found a deep joy and satisfaction in the process of making a video game
12: that first game he developed would start him down a path of working on various games with varying roles from creative director to narrative designer like on the game Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator.
4: It is a virtual stock ticker and auction interface set in the far future where you are buying and selling the one thing everyone needs and has at the end of the world, meat, organs. Juicy Jiggly Bits.
12: Or an airport for aliens currently run by dogs which yes, is exactly like what you're probably thinking right now. You get a boarding pass, 50 boarding passes if you want. That dog has short-term memory loss. He's just happy to help. You look for your flight. And that was sort of the catalyst for Nelson founding his own video game studio, Strange Scaffold, in 2019. He started with a $2,000 investment from his dad, that 2000 grew to 40,000 through what Nelson says was elbow grease and the grace of God.
4: Strange Scaffold has now released five games, completing our sixth, got two more at least releasing this year. That all came from an amount of money that I had been told when I started my studio is not enough to make a video game or to pay people effectively. And we've managed to do both.
13: We are actively giving people money to make their video games. Like we're just trying our best to remove the barriers.
12: Kat Small is another developer and product designer based in New York City. She says access to capital is just one thing that can prevent Black people from getting into the video game industry which is one of the reasons that Small and a fellow group of developers organized the Game Devs of Color Expo, a place to showcase their games and connect developers with the people who write checks. Small herself started coding at the age of 10. She wanted to make her own dress up doll game.
9: The thing that I really
13: have always loved about games is the ability to become
12: something else or to imagine different worlds. One game Small has developed is called Sweetheart. You play as a 19-year-old Black girl from the Bronx, going through the ups and downs of everyday life. (sighs) Choices like what you decide to wear affect how you're treated in the game, and it highlights some of the microaggressions Black women face.
13: Being a woman, a Black woman in New York City, you experience a fair amount of street harassment. And a man actually told me, that he was not going to harass uh, women or
12: catcall women anymore after playing the game. Without Black people in the driver's seat, games like that probably wouldn't exist or have the same kind of impact.
7: Race is a big part of games these days. I feel like the characters that we play, the people that make the games, they all kind of need to kind of represent Something.
12: Neil Jones, better known as Ariel Knight, is another video game developer who wants to see more people who look like him in the industry. He's based in Detroit, and his grandma, who raised him, is actually part of the reason he got into video games.
7: And my favorite thing was after she would get done, you know, working and cooking and all that stuff, she would just want to play bejeweled. And I would sit there and watch her. And then she would give me the controller and I'd try to be her score and we'd go back and forth.
12: Jones taught himself most of what he knows today about video game development. The first game he developed and published is called Never Yield. Now, if you're familiar with the game Temple Run, Jones says Never Yield is kind of similar. Set in a futuristic Tokyo-style Detroit, you play as a lost person, being chased by enemies.
7: This one has like cutscenes, the player interacts with the environment and has a lot of freedom of movement. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my friend Dan doing a, a, a full original soundtrack.
6: Like
12: a own, a
7: we had rappers come in, singers come in and do and record over that. That's not really something you see a lot in games, especially indie games.
12: For Jones, this was his game to prove himself as a developer. And he made it all on his own dime.
7: I've been trying to get into the game industry for so long let me make my own thing. If uh, if I'm never gonna make it into the game industry, let me make a perfect example. of This is what they're rejecting.
12: His quote, perfect example of a game was a success. Never Yield was released in 2021 on several major gaming platforms. But Jones believes skilled video game developers like him should be further along in their careers.
7: By now I should be like a studio lead or some kind of like leading some massive project
12: Many video game companies pledged in 2020 to do better when it comes to diversity and inclusion. But something I heard from a lot of the Black developers I spoke with is that when they're offered opportunities at bigger companies, sometimes those offers are below their skill level.
7: I don't think we'll ever be able to fix the original sin of like these massive studios who uh, have hired people over the last 20 years. Actively not hiring black people, we can never make up for the lost time.
12: But Jones isn't dwelling on that lost time. He's staying creative and encouraging other black people, especially kids, to get into the video game industry despite the barriers.
7: I talked to so many black parents, who whose kids were so interested in gaming, and you know, I kind of just, just told them like, there's a lot of different jobs in gaming, community managers to like project managers. He doesn't have to be a master at coding or be a master artist to kind of get into this. People say that, you know, the journey that I took was uh, inspirational and I never saw it like that until I talked to all those kids and those families.
12: Find your own space and voice, he says, and just do what you like the most. Bernarda Scott, NPR News.
0: The Roys are back in our lives. The HBO hit Succession returns for its fourth and final season on Sunday. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins says it's an impressively funny and ambitious start to a landmark season, featuring a foul-mouthed family running a huge media company.
10: There is a lot that happens in the first four episodes of Succession's final season, and it's tough to talk about any of it without dropping huge spoilers, but I'll try. So let's start with this. The show paints a devastating portrait of the three youngest adult children of Rupert Murdoch-style media magnate Logan Roy. As the season begins, the kids, or Sibs as they are sometimes called, are on the outs with their old man, aiming to create a new media company on their own. But while sifting through a bunch of terrible marketing ideas, they're mostly dropping a lot of empty jargon especially Roman Roy, played by Kieran Culkin, and Jeremy Strong's Kendall Roy, who speaks first.
4: The 100 is Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. I feel like we said iconic, and you guys are leaning ironic.
10: Meanwhile, in another location, Logan Roy is holding a birthday party. Cousin Greg, played by Nicholas Braun, has brought a new date to the event. This doesn't sit well with Logan's personal assistant slash girlfriend, Carrie, played by Zoe Winters. Greg tries to explain. I brought a date. That's okay, right?
11: What's her name? What's her full name?
7: Bridget. Is it
11: random? Is it random? You is know, she from the apps,
6: Greg?
7: I really like her. Oh. I, I might have fallen for her.
6: Oh, that's great. How many previous dates have you had?
10: Um, Carrie, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure this is appropriate. And let's not forget Connor Roy, played by Alan Ruck, Logan's oldest child, who's running for president and polling at a not-so-impressive 1%. He tells cousin Greg he's worried he might have to spend more money on advertising to keep his polling up. fear is, in these last days, uh, it could get squeezed.
3: Squeezed down mm. from one? Because that's the lowest number uh,
8: No, possible. there's, you know, decimals. It gets awfully spendy to get aggressive.
10: Like how much? Like uh, another 100 mil. 100 million, damn. As always, Succession offers loads of expertly crafted dry humor while showing a family isolated and infantilized by its enormous wealth and emotional disconnection. The children may spend millions to launch a media company or political campaign, but you get the sense they couldn't actually pull off any initiative of their own if they didn't have an army of flunkies to actually execute it. And Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox, is the most isolated of all. Fans will recall at the end of the third season, Logan renegotiated his divorce settlement to take power from his children within his company. With the three sibs now united against him, Logan is grumping through life like a lion with a thorn in his paw, unable to admit he misses his children and demanding obsequious underlings entertain him.
0: Come on, roast
4: me. Mm, Give me a drubbing. Frank, start. Be funny.
7: Not really my thing, Chief. Oh, you don't think I can take it? I mean, I can you, the thing about Logan Roy is he's a tough old nut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ, shit, Caesar.
10: The real drama of Succession often plays at the margins. How a character reacts after an embarrassing moment or acidly tart put-down. And the cast reveals some amazing acting chops here, especially after a huge event in the third episode, which changes everything. I won't detail it here, but it does reset all the relationships, revealing that succession isn't just a satire of how the whims and dysfunctions of the wealthy affect our world. It's the story of a deeply disordered family that somehow still struggles to find each other through the steepest obstacles that wealth and the world can supply. I'm Eric Deggins.
0: In the new movie Champions, we meet Marcus at a turning point in his life. His attitude has cost him his minor league basketball coaching job, and a DUI has left him at the mercy of a judge.
11: I will offer you ninety days
0: community service,
11: coaching adults with intellectual disabilities at the Friends Association in Capital East.
0: Marcus, who's played by Woody Harrelson, reluctantly accepts the community service, and that's where he meets the Friends, an unconventional basketball team.
8: What, Coach?
14: Yeah.
3: What's that guy's deal?
15: Showtime?
14: is a specialist. Specialist? Yeah, he's the only player in the league who shoots backwards from half court. And he's on our team.
8: Pretty good Saha coach?
0: No, that's a terrible shot. And this may come as a complete surprise if you've never seen a sports movie before. But Marcus and the team go on to learn from each other. Kevin Iannucci plays Johnny, one of the team's key players. Like Johnny, Kevin has Down syndrome, and he is joining us now... To talk about the movie hey kevin hey what's up the first question i had is what attracted you to this role what made you want to do this movie
15: i've actually seen the spanish version of this movie oh. and it was funny it was heartwarming emotional and i just wanted to be a, a part of it
0: i wanted to ask you about something you wrote in an essay for newsweek you were talking about your acting career And you wrote that stepping out onto the stage was like stepping through a portal into a fantasy land. When the final act would end and all the lights came up, the thunderous applause would make my heart burst with pride. How did you first get into acting?
15: Hmm. I started when I was kind of young and then I kind of went into theater and I did some stage plays, first high school play, and then I went To join a local agent, which got me my first debut movie, *The Best of Enemies*, Mm -hmm. and then uh, my biggest role ever is *Champions*, and I'm so excited about it.
0: And that connection you feel to acting, that reaction in the moment—did that come right away for you? Was this something where the first time you did it, you felt this is for me?
15: Yeah, I think I had potential, so here I am now.
0: And you mentioned *Champions* is is your biggest role. You're, You're one of the leads of the movie. Yeah. What was it like to be in that setting on a big movie with, with a movie star like Woody Harrelson?
15: A magical experience. I had so much fun keeping up with them between Woody and Caitlyn. and they are just amazing. Even on what they do, it's so fun to get along with them.
0: I mean, there's a message in this movie, and I'm wondering if you think the movie as a whole might have a, a broader message for Hollywood. There's been such a conversation about diversity in movies. Yeah. Do you hope that, that this opens the door for more roles like people like you or more movies with this kind of focus?
15: I, I totally agree about that. And I do see um people with disabilities, you can just go out for it and do what you gotta do and believe in it.
0: What's been your favorite memory of this process? I, I think one of my favorites has to be actually
15: called a karaoke. Yeah. I mean that scene, I say um knock that down and get up again and now that's gotta keep me down. I think that was like one of the most favorite songs I have. Yeah. That I like to listen to.
0: That's a fun song to sing, but was it was it uh did it make you nervous to be goading Woody Harrelson into singing along in that scene? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. No. <laughs> that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie too. Uh what what comes next for you? You said this is your third movie role, right?
15: Yes. I can't wait for any other woes to come. I'm going to keep acting.
0: Well, I can't wait to see him either. Uh, it's Kevin Iannucci who plays Johnny in the movie Champions, which is out now. Kevin, thank you so much for talking to us.
15: Yeah, thank you. That's
2: so.